0: We're going to talk about demons today. We have our gospel reading from Mark. We're just working our way through Mark at the moment. And we're no more than 21 verses in when Jesus has his first encounter with a demon. And this is going to become a recurring theme in the gospel of Mark. Jesus is going to be encountering demons in his ministry. And the demonic forces are one of the sources of opposition to his ministry. The other being the scribes and the Pharisees. So the people that are hidebound and stuck in their tradition um, are one source of opposition to the work of Christ, and the demonic powers of evil are another source of opposition to the work of Christ and of course, Christ defeats those powers as part of the story and um, the, the, it's, there's a clear message that Mark is trying to get us to hear because these things are repeated so often that Mark is really trying to hammer home something about the work of Christ and what Christ does and what this means. Now, when I talk about demonic powers, I am well aware that we are a couple of hundred years past the Enlightenment and the, uh, the many things that we thought were demonic powers in a supernatural sense have now come to be interpreted through the lens of a post-Enlightenment paradigm, which is to say that mental illness has now come to take a lot of what we used to call demonic possession. And thank God for that. We've learned more about human nature. We've learned more about how to treat and to cure. Not that our modern methods are perfect in any respect in dealing with what we now call mental illness, but uh, but we certainly have found from the scientific method, ways of looking at, understanding, and treating phenomena that previously we just did a hand wave towards demonic powers, and this is good. As an Anglican, science and faith are in harmony, they're not in opposition, so this is all fine. Now, when we talk about the supernatural and demonic powers now, however, it's it's been relegated so far to the margins that it's hard even to talk about. Um, And as a a Christian priest, people whisper it to me, because they don't want anyone to hear. And I've, thank God, never been faced with demonic possession. Someone claiming to or being diagnosed as being possessed by a demon. I have been called to perform ghost-busting services. And I call it that to myself just to keep myself humble. Uh, People have had experiences in their houses and other places of things that they cannot explain that sure look like a ghost but they're even afraid to put that name on it. So they live with it for a while and the place gets cold in certain places and stuff gets thrown across the room and they don't know what's going on and finally in desperation they give me a call. This has happened four or five times in my ministry so it's not very often, it's rare. And the first time it happened, I didn't know what to do. I'm a modern, rational person. But, you know, who are you going to call? You call the priest, right? (laughs) So, who am I going to call? I call my bishop. Tell me what to do, boss. And my bishop, David, at the time said, Oh, I don't even know about that stuff myself. Here, I'll just send you the, the report from the 1970s that the House of Bishops made in England. Just read that and then figure out what to do. Thanks David. So I read the report from the House of Bishops where they, you know, were even-handed and fair and they say we can't rule out demonic possession and we certainly can't rule out the supernatural. So, if you, if you really believe, now do try to diagnose it carefully and if you really do believe you're dealing with something supernatural, here's what you do. Well, in the case of a house, you go and you celebrate Holy Communion in the house. And you bless the house, and you bless the house with blessed water, holy water. So you sprinkle it, so you go full-on medieval. And so you bless a mixture of salt and water, and you exercise the salt, and you bless the salt, and you exercise the water, and you bless the water, and you mix them, and you then bless the mixture. And that is real holy water. That's not just something that I've said thank you to God for. This is this is the real deal. And then I take a, a sprig of uh, cedar or something. I, I, don't, I can't afford a silver aspergillium, so a sprig of cedar will do fine. And I go through every room in the house, and I exercise the room, and I bless the room. I cast out whatever spirits may be there, and I ask God to come and bless it. And I go through the entire house. We open the cupboards. We go through this whole process of letting everything see the light. And so, I'd, and the first time I'm doing this, I'm thinking, this is completely crazy. What am I doing? But the people who asked me to come to their house were not crazy. I knew them. They were members of my parish. And they were not mad. They weren't. They were some of the sanest people I knew. So I just did the service. And at the end of the service, I said, well, that's done. Thanks. Let's see how it goes. And uh, they told me, no problems after that. Whatever I did, it worked. Not that I did anything, because I was very aware of how ill-equipped I was to deal with anything supernatural. I'm not particularly amazing, pious, holy, or any of those things. I don't see myself in that way. I'm just an ordinary bloke doing my job. So it clearly was not about me. It was about the name of Jesus, which was invoked in the liturgy in order to cast out whatever spirits might be there. So on the basis of my own experience, I know that there is something, or I believe that there is something going on that has yet to be explained by modern scientific methods. And furthermore, I would argue that it is pretty hubristic of us to think that we understand all that there is to be understood. So there's lots of room for mystery and unexplained phenomena even now. I start my, my discussion of demonic powers by going straight up medieval supernatural because I believe there still is something to that paradigm. It's not been completely displaced. While acknowledging the work that we have done and the progress we have made scientifically, there is still a whole other paradigm that, is, uh, that has a um, real explanatory power. Even having acknowledged that, the notion of demonic powers is a broader concept for me than just the supernatural. Um, and, and here, I, I want to be careful with my words, there are phenomena that you can explain using naturalistic explanations, which I believe are still supernatural. So that you can say, I understand everything there is to understand about that, but in order to really understand it, you need to resort to the language of the spiritual forces of wickedness, to quote our baptismal service. By the way, did you know that in every every baptism, we exorcise the person being baptized? That's part of a baptism ritual. When there are those six questions, do you renounce Satan. Do you renounce do you the spiritual desires? Do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness? Right? Do, you, do you renounce the evil powers of this world? That is the casting out of dark spiritual powers. Do you turn to Christ and accept him as your savior? Do you promise to follow him as your Lord? That is the blessing of the person, the this casting out of the darkness and the welcoming in of the light. It is an exorcism. So, we do that in every baptism and we acknowledge the spiritual forces of wickedness. Now, the spiritual forces of wickedness are not only supernatural, they are natural. um, They include natural forces that have a supernatural dimension. For example, um, if I punch somebody in the face, you can explain that using physics. Physics will tell you everything you need to know about me punching somebody in the face. But that could be the consequence or the working out of a spiritual force of wickedness. Uh, some problem in our relationship that may even be the result of bigger forces that have us both in their grip. So I'm now going to talk about other kinds of demonic forces that, that I believe that paradigm works just as well to address. Um, where, where should I start? Um, uh, addiction. That's an easy one. Let's start there. An addiction could be explained entirely naturalistically. It's a chemical dependency. It's something that makes you feel bad until you feed the addiction. And the addiction gives you a temporary release and then that sets up this cycle of behavior which uh, goes into a downward spiral. Um, But when you look at the characteristics of addiction, it's a force that's bigger than you. It's something that corrupts and destroys who you are, your soul. Um, And it's something that you are not powerful enough on your own to overcome. Which you might as well call it a demon. Alcoholism. Is it just a cluster of behaviors? Is it a demonic force? Does it even matter? They both make just as much sense as each other. So addiction is one. Um, Family system dynamic dysfunction. And I know that's a lot of jargon, so, so give me a second. For those of you not familiar with Family Systems Dynamics, it's a, it's a therapeutic way of looking at human problems, particularly as they occur in families and other groups, where the problem gets blamed on an individual, where the correct diagnosis is that it doesn't live in the individual, but in the system. The system of relationships are poisoned and toxic, and it's the system that is exerting control over everybody that's been affected by that system. Most commonly this occurs in families, where there's some trauma or pattern somewhere. You talk about uh, abuse, for example, running down through generations, and my father was an abuser, and I'm an abuser, and my kid's an abuser, and that it it does all sorts of weird things to people's relationship with their sexuality and their relationships, and the whole thing is a great big ball of wire that's all tangled up and part of everything, and one person decides they're going to get better. And so they go to therapy and they start working on their stuff and taking responsibility for their behavior and starting to make positive changes. And all of a sudden, everybody in the rest of the family starts sabotaging their attempts to get better. Not because the family is bad people, but because the system is exerting control over them and forcing them and twisting them into something they're not. And so the system itself is functioning like a spiritual force of wickedness. That requires some higher power to overcome. On and on and on. Now, um, so there are. There are supernatural phenomena and there are natural phenomena that have this supernatural dimension. And part of the story of Mark is of how Jesus is in fundamental opposition with these forces. There is no quarter being asked or given. And now I have to do a little Bible study with you because when we see in this little story the first story of Jesus encounter with the demon, we see a few characteristics that I think really pop within this context. One of them is that the demon recognizes Jesus. So. Um, Back up a little step. In Mark's Gospel, you may have noticed that Jesus keeps his identity or purpose a secret. He's a messiah, but he doesn't want anyone to know that. And this gets called the messianic secret in Mark. And there, why, why does he not want anyone to know becomes the question. So people go, I, I know who you are. And he says, shh, don't tell anybody about me. So he keeps his messiah, like a superhero. He's got a secret identity that he's got to keep under wraps. And here in the very first chapter, 21 verses in, the demon recognizes him and calls him out for who he is. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus responds by saying, be quiet, stop talking, and then casts him out. So the, the, t- the casting out of the demon and the telling of the demon to be quiet is part of the story of the messianic secret. And what's fascinating to me about the messianic secret is there are different interpretations of what it means. Here's what I think it means. I think the messianic secret is because if word got out too soon that Jesus is the Messiah, people would get the wrong idea. They didn't know what kind of Messiah he was. They thought a Messiah was a military leader that was going to raise some armies and smash the Romans and get rid of, you know, restore the kingdom politically. Um, and Jesus, as we all know now, was not that kind of Messiah. Jesus' Messiahship was most fully revealed on the cross in vulnerability and death, which leads to new life. So the Messiahship of Jesus was a completely, radically different kind of Messiahship than what the world would expect. So my understanding of the messianic secret is that he needed to keep it a secret because they would start to co-opt him and make him part of the earthly demonic power systems that contributed to the ongoing misery of humanity. The only way to break that cycle was to become this new kind of Messiah. So the demon, when the demon calls him out and says, I know who you are, you are the Holy One of God. The demon is lying, but the best kind of lie because it's true. Now, if you understand where I'm going with this, it's a truth. So the demon can say, I'm just telling the truth. But the demon knows just as well as Jesus that telling the truth in this context is going to lead to a misinterpretation, and then it is more fundamentally a falsehood. Because the demon wants Jesus to be co-opted into the demonic forces that keep humanity in slavery. So by telling the truth in a twisted way, the demon is engaging in battle no quarter being asked or given between Jesus and the demon. The demon is out to destroy Jesus by exposing the secret. And so Jesus does battle and says, out you go, be quiet, and that's the end of the story. Jesus doesn't have to fight very hard, Jesus being God. It's another part of the story. It's not really a battle, um, or it's not really a contest, rather. So that business of co-opting Jesus into the wrong kind of messiahship also has a very interesting nuance when we think about those naturalistic demonic forces. The forces of addiction and, um, and family systems dynamics. Um, another one that I could have gotten into was ideology. These idea systems that we become identified with and we say I am my ideas and if you threaten my ideas you threaten me. So I'm a conservative, I'm a liberal, I'm a progressive, I'm a whatever it is. I'm an Anglican, I'm whatever it is. It becomes part of my identity and I'll do violence to you if you threaten that. Another demonic force. And the the thing about those forces is that when they become challenged by the work of God, they always recognize the work of God, and their biggest and best defense is to co-opt the talk of God into the dysfunction, into the demonic power, so that religion gets pulled into the twisted workings of the devil. So, in a dysfunctional family, Jesus gets named and says, are you going to make Jesus cry? Well, you don't want to do that. Then do what you've always done. Don't get better. Because otherwise you're making Jesus cry. And all of a sudden the religion gets tied up in this dysfunctional mess. Not that anyone would have ever had an experience of that in this room. But you see the picture I'm drawing. That, it, that there's, a, there's a truth to it. There's enough truth to it that they can pull Jesus in it. And it looks plausible. But fundamentally, it's serving a lie. It's serving the demonic forces that corrupt and enslave the creatures of God. So we have to be alive to that. That is the way these forces work. So the, 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 the true way through, the way the victory over these forces achieved is simply by trusting in the power of Christ. It is by following the way of Jesus. So in these more naturalistic systems, the solution is not to turn Jesus into part of the problem, but to remember that the Jesus we follow is the crucified Messiah, the one who dies in order to rise to new life. And if we stay on the path of the cross, then we participate in a power that is greater than ourselves. We become part of the working of God. Christ is able to work through us and do more things than we can ask or imagine. Just like me going, I don't know what I'm doing in this house, but I'm just gonna do my job and I hope it works. Right? I'm, I'm not saying, hey, now I'm an exorcist, that's pretty cool. That's the wrong thing. That would be the demonic force that's twisting and co-opting something good into something poisonous. Because when a priest thinks they're an awesome exorcist, watch out, right? So I just follow the crucified Christ. This is not about me. This is about what God is doing. All I need to do is forget myself and just do my job. And that becomes for me the paradigm in, in doing battle with demonic forces. In a sense, it's not my battle. Um, it's God's battle. And I have to let it be God's battle. And when I let it be God's battle and just be a faithful follower of the way of the cross, then the victory is assured. And so there you have it. Demonic forces, supernatural and natural. The answer, of course, is Jesus. But beware the co-opting. Because that's when it really gets twisted and poisonous. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.